All right, folks, welcome to Seishura, the Music Explorers podcast. As usual, I'm Scoop Magoo. I'm Elaine. And we have been inspiring ourselves with our recent episodes based on conversations from the last episode. So if you remember, I uh, tortured Elaine by talking about my background and affinity for ska. And well, when we were that, that, that came up because we were talking about uh, Tony Rancid. Hawk, I think. No, but we were talking about Rancid. Rancid and then Tony uh, Hawk. And so it's, it's, it's not unrelated, like most of our segues. Sure, that's, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I just, I went on a tangent about ska and then we were talking about what we might do this week and I said, let's, let's do an album dare. And I wanted to pick, um, what's probably still my favorite OG ska album. And that is the self-titled specials album, which came out in, uh, my copy says 1980, but I'm pretty sure this came out in 79. Let me Google yeah. that real quick. I, I um, thought it was a seventies album. I mean, Elvis Costello produces it. Yeah. Which which I, it was, I didn't know. Yeah. It's a it. cool, it's a cool little tidbit. Um, but they, so I think ska really became what most people, at least most people our age know, you know, know it to be in the nineties. You had like, you know, the Boston's real big fish, uh, less than Jake, uh, those kind of bands that, really fuse pop punk with um really just it's it was pop punk with horns you know they, they definitely mm. you know they used i mean the, the key thing that makes ska ska um you know above anything else there's ska without horns it's that like upstroke where yeah it's, it's kind of like i think a, it's a, like like a backbeat to two four instead of a one yeah three. yeah exactly it's like a, like a danceable um you know guitar drum combo and, and usually has some nice uh nice bass thrown in there which i think is especially true for the, the specials and it's, it's rooted in um you know reggae dub and um, rock steady yep and it, it really um it really manifested in england you had uh, specials uh, madness uh, english beat and two, it, two-tone records yeah it it it, it kind of took that um you know those like classic styles and infused them with uh punk in a way and it's, it's, it, depending on the band it was you know different results and something that's interesting it, this has always been a little bit of a um i don't want to say a sticking point but something that i was a little disappointed to find out that a, a number of the song like, i think a, a great deal of these songs are either reworkings or outright covers of um you know traditional yeah you know reggae and soul songs you know from um you know basically from you know, Caribbean countries or Jamaica or whatever and um, I think that you know it definitely sounds like their own I haven't listened to all of the original versions but um, it's still it it's interesting that it's it's in some ways a covers album I mean not you know not entirely but uh, I, I wish that if I don't know that, that uh, what do you think about that because I mean I don't know a lot of other albums that kind of follow this route where there are so many it's really a reworking of a style you know in a way um. I, I'm trying to think because they, I I feel like there are a couple of albums that do that. Um, I mean, I guess we could talk about Led Zeppelin. You know, they're they're often. I mean, I know they didn't necessarily yeah, like 100 rip but off. But like, like even take Led Zeppelin one. Like, there are still a number of original tunes. Yeah. In that. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of like 
something where like the majority of the tracks are you know covers or someone else's uh group oh actually well i mean um i actually haven't listened to it but uh nick cave's uh kicking against the pricks is like uh just a total cover album okay but i mean i'm assuming that, that he makes you know those oh actually no that, that's a perfect one um emotive by a perfect circle which was their final album for a long time until like last like a couple years ago um they most of that i think was it covers except for like one song um and it, it, they're okay i see I, I i think it's a little different just talking about it you know because I, I think for that album like talking about music today is different from talking about music you know back in like the 60s and the, in the 70s when i i feel like a lot of this stuff was still being pioneered like a lot of it was still really fresh yeah because like I, I don't know, like, I feel like what the specials were doing here was pretty new and pretty novel, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, like, you know, I, I think A Perfect Circle, like, A Perfect Circle, like, it definitely has their own sound, but it um, doesn't mean that that, it, that exactly applies to their covers, like, you're still, you kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah. In a way, um... You know, it, it, it's just a little different. Like, I, I felt like they're actually taking it, what, what what might be a, you know, you, you brought up Zeppelin. Uh, ZZ Top might be a good example, too. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, but I, I can only remember, like, um, I think Trace Hombres. I think they have, like, uh, Dust My Broom and, like, a couple of, like, old blue standards that they really just kind of make to their own. By which I mean they, they they just really pump up the distortion and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, and I definitely feel like this album is. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily as aggressive as some of the other punk that was coming out at the time, but it really did have a little bit more of a, a bite to it. I mean, you obviously had versus a you know a lot of the singing in a, in a you know Jamaican accent. You had you know kind a, of the, a the really, patois. Yeah, like <laughs> the the really sharp biting. Um, English accent of I was getting mixed up of Terry Hall because they had two vocalists. Um, Neville Staple is kind of just um, he's almost like a hype man. It's actually something that's relatively common in ska. The Mighty Mighty Boston. Yeah, it's a uh, what they call, they, they call it toasting. Yeah, I think. And Mighty Mighty Boston's have this too, which I think is interesting. It seems like ska bands just love having an excuse to have as many members as possible <laughs> on stage. Well, I mean, they, like, like to be fair, you 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 have a lot of you know instruments that you're you're dealing with sure because like you know just to have like you know having one trumpet is like okay but like you know it seems like you want a little more of a brass section than just that so you know you're probably expecting like a second trumpet maybe a trombone maybe something more put in as well exactly um and what's interesting about the specials is there really aren't a ton of songs that employ um horns which at least definitely yeah. in comparison to today's ska where i mean virtually every track um you know features you know now this this i think is just trombone and um trumpet you have you know sax i think those are really the i haven't seen any other like i i think it's just like you know uh not necessarily a refinement but like you know when you go forward in music you know the musicians of like one generation take the elements that they like from the, from the music of the previous generation, you know. So, like, you know, in in this case, you're you're taking like that that up that uh, up down beat 
kind of, and mm-hmm. you're taking like the horns, but you're kind of leaving a rat like the rest of like the, that kind of chill vibe that you get from like a lot of like ska and reggae and yeah. dub. Uh, you're leaving that behind in favor of like you know a lot more punk, or you know uh, I mean you want to go really contemporary, just trap. Like they basically just took you know everything from like southern hip hop that they liked and just threw out the rest. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also wonder how much of it is doo doo. Doo doo. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I regretted it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I wonder how much of it is um, a result of. How's that? Um, um, <laughs> just what was available to them? I know my friends actually in high school were uh, in a ska band, and they had two trumpet players because among their broader circles, those were the only you know brass or woodwind players that they knew. I think at one point they had a saxophonist, but she didn't last long. So I wonder if they just you know they could fi- find a a trumpeteer and a trombonist for this album, but you know they couldn't find a saxophonist because the, the English beat. Which Sometimes, came out around, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so the English beat came out around the same time. You know, they had they their only horn or not horn, their only um, extra instrumentalist was a saxophone player. So it was it was it wasn't it was it wasn't something that was um, just started later on in ska's lifespan. It was it was relatively close to when it was when it was founded. Um, I don't know. I also wonder how because obviously they were they had a re- relatively. Um, good run and this is a well-regarded album but i think of all the genres in kind of the broader punk sphere i think sky is easily the least cool Um, well i mean like it's not sky really isn't punk though yeah like it's a like what we're talking about is like a fusion of the two um and honestly i i don't really know if like this would be a real good uh, I mean, at least, I don't know, but maybe just because I'm so used to, like, 90s ska punk, but, like, this just didn't, I didn't really hear much punk in this. Yeah, but, no, But then sure. again, Elvis Costello is considered a punk, and I've, I've just never considered him <laughs> to be, like, something like that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, uh, I think for the time, I could see them. I mean, I think that they were, um, I actually read, um, back in high school, uh, which one? It was the bassist, uh, Horace Panther. Uh, I read his um, autobiography about the specials. I don't remember a lot of it because I was I was, it was the earlier part of high school. But they kind of talked in a similar way to um, the Joy Division book we read, where they like they would refer to things as like metal or punk. They just had more of a broader, less defined view. They kind of referenced genres yeah. almost like how it made them feel. Um, so I feel like these guys consider themselves part of the punk scene in a way. Um, but obviously they, you know, they weren't. This certainly is not, um, this certainly is not the, the Scott Punk that people are used to. They're probably, like, if if they're thinking of the Tony Hawk era, you know, Goldfinger and stuff like that, this is this is not it. And that's kind of well, why well, I picked Well, here it. I am, getting yeah. older all the time. That's kind of why <laughs> I picked this, because I, um, I was surprised how much I liked this. Because, you know, obviously at the time I loved, you know, Blink-182, Found Glory, like oh, that kind of pop punk, and I, I wanted the hooks. And this was a little bit more of a nuanced release that was was closer to what ska originally was versus what you know now we're we kind of call ska. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a really really fun album. I still enjoy it. I was I was singing along um, to a lot of songs I haven't listened to in a while. I've had this CD for a little bit, 
Um, I bought it recently, but I used to listen to this all the time. I had a, like a some, one of my friends burn me a copy. But a message to you, Rudy, is awesome. Do the dog. I love that. Um, obviously, Little Bitch is a is a great song. Um, maybe not a, a chorus for our times, but it's uh, <laughs> nevertheless a really fun track. I love the bass. Where I think one of my favorite parts of this is just how how well everything went. At least for me, I I enjoy really every contribution from the band here like i don't really think anyone sticks out um more so than anyone else i love the bass work i love the um the way that the keys flow in the drumming is fun um it's a really really fun release i mean i I, you know i've i've listened to and talked about this a lot um but really i'm curious what what you think elaine because i know that you haven't listened to a ton of ska and certainly um, I don't know if you would have sought this out <laughs> if not for this episode. So yeah, so uh, I think I've talked about my uh, awkward relationship with like reggae mm-hmm. in the past. That I, I, as much as like things like dub really interest me, on like a you know like a conceptual level, like you know just like if I just went to Wikipedia's page on dub music, like the way they talk about it, I'm like fuck yeah, like that sounds super cool. Uh, in reality, the actual listening to it though, it, re- reggae is a tough sell for me. Um, <laughs> I I just have not been able to find a good foothold, and uh, unfortunately, it was kind of the same thing here. Mm. Um, this was one of those albums that like I only had to listen to this once to know my thoughts on it, and I just I I just couldn't make myself listen to it again because um, it was just like I I, I guess it, it like similar to other things that it's you can you can see sort of you know where where it was a touchstone even though i you know again i'm not as well versed in reggae and you know uh this sort of music as as much as other people um but you know it, it just really wasn't for me <laughs> that um and i think the biggest thing was i i mean but one just way too repetitive for me yeah way too no, for like sure. Like the the track, what was it? Um, um, too much, too young. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I that 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 song is the longest track on the entire album. It should have been like a third of the time, frankly. <laughs> and it, even then, like they repeated that same phrase, like that that same hook, like hmm, upwards of twenty times. Yeah, they, I'm thinking they do. It, it drove me nuts um and like even like the 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 tracks that you know you were really talking about like little bitch and like message to you rudy i was just like eh, just it, it's more just just because i like just reggae has like you know like, like just I, I think part of it has to do with that 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 two four beat a little bit like i i don't mind it but if you're just doing that for an hour straight like it, it it's just it wears on me very quickly like mm-hmm. at, at least i think with you know like all credit to these guys but like you know kind of like that 90s like ska punk like i felt like they added some variance to it and obviously like that that's because they're coming at it from a completely different angle you know the, this is this is more like pure like this this is this is your your uncut cocaine if you will mm-hmm. um whereas like 
you know, <laughs> like like nineties nineties Scott Punk has been little stepped on, if you will. Um, you know, it it's so it, it's just um, yeah, it w- wasn't really a fun fun listen for me. <laughs> um, I it's it's just like I mean, maybe it's just I don't know, I I guess I never really got a ton of exposure to reggae and like dub as as a kid. Uh, but I mean, you could say that about pretty much every genre that we talk about, because like I pretty much just grew up exclusively on classic rock mm-hmm. and a little bit of classical music. But even then, it was not huge, you know. Sure. So, like, but but I'm assuming you you probably had more um, sort of experience with it at a younger age. I mean, obviously, you were into Scott in high school. So actually, and and that's what's really interesting about you know why you know I, I have loved this album for as long as I have and it's really it's never worn off me I mean I totally get um where you're coming from and this is a very repetitive album uh, I, I I find it catchy and I think those hooks work for me but I totally understand yeah. why they they wouldn't but I Look, really I, have I, not I, I I'm not here to shit on it Just, no no I, but I, I, I totally clear, you know so. like I get it you know there are some times when people critique an album and I'm like I just I don't hear that or agree with it but I, I totally get it here um, and it's interesting because I never, I have no background with reggae at all in my childhood. Um, and the reggae huh. I've listened to, it basically everything you use to describe this album, that's exactly how I feel about yeah. virtually all reggae. And for some reason, I just, I, I think the hooks work here. Maybe it's because they sing about themes I, I can um, relate to. Maybe it's because I just, I find British accents really funny. So I, yeah. I think that like I, some of the, that, that that part of it's cool and like like I, I do like like a patois like I it, it sounds cool uh, unless Drake's doing it but <laughs> but yeah I think um, in some ways that elevates the uh, like some of the punchlines or some of the the light light humor he throws in because he's saying it in a British accent uh, like yeah. on Do I, the Dog when he's like all you punks and all you tits I don't know for some reason every time that makes me giggle a little bit. Um, well, so the uh, so two things. Um, first, I I think if I had come to this like I think around the age that you were when you got into this, like I think if if I weren't if I wasn't exposed to like Rancid and like that type of like ska punk before this, or at least I I it doesn't hold such a place in my heart that it does right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I I, I would probably be sort of where you are right now but i think mm-hmm. having been exposed to that like I, I i think it's sort of like like i they consider um oh what's his face um forest swords to be kind of like an ambient dub uh act mm-hmm. to a certain extent and like you know you listen to that i'm like that's fucking cool uh but that's because he's taking in all this other stuff along with dub you know hence ambient dub whereas like you know, I, I, I think I'm more interested in those hybrid hybridizations rather than sort of the original thing for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I know, like, Masada is, like, you know, really interesting to me because it's 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 klezmer music and free jazz. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's so unorthodox in a way um, to me. But I think that... And then um, I forgot what my second point was. <laughs> But oh, they, like I, I think just again, like like the punk side of it, I I just, they like this is described as punk rock and things like that. I just, 
I, I don't see that at all. And like to be fair, like you know, we like our collective definition of punk is very different from most of the music worlds. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, because you know we, we consider the Clash to be punk. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. Like, or they consider the Clash to be punk, not us. Uh, in a sense. So it's just it just seems like a very loose interpretation of it. And you know, again, it, to go back to what I just said as well, you know, it's because we come at it from you know having listened to like Minor Threat, mm-hmm. you know, where they kind of took those elements like they they took the elements that they wanted and just like revved them up you know and so like you're just coming in with all these different definitions and so i I think just coming in like expecting some sort of punk i and not having that i think just kind of damned this album a little more for me um but you know uh i i'm glad i listened to it i think it's i i kind of i feel like Catch me in five years. I feel like I, I might start liking reggae, but I, yeah. uh, may, I, I maybe. <laughs> I mean, there, there are genres, you know, like I, I never thought I used to always be, you know, I like everything except country um, kind of folks. And I, you know, just last year finally clicked for me. So I feel like, yeah. um, you know, now I might, um, I don't know, because I, yeah, I haven't. I hadn't even really thought about this album for a little while until we had that conversation about ska. And I think, you know, kind of the last point for me is that one of the other things that um, I think has helped this album maintain its its place with me is back when I fell in love with it, I was not used to enjoy, like I didn't, I specifically didn't like like older band. Like for some reason I just, it was all about like newer artists and if it was older that was kind of not really um i don't know i just i wasn't you know i I had a very niche like uh window when i think back to it i didn't like songs that were like four or five minutes i didn't like older music so the fact that like for whatever reason i think says my friend's band covered little bitch live so i just i I thought that song was really good and Mm. i just listened to it and i appreciated the album as a whole i liked what they were doing and I, i i think uh I don't know. I think this is kind of a a good excuse to give reggae a try because I don't think I've ever even listened, to, like, sat down and seriously listened to a full reggae album. Which yeah, I, mean, I I just I don't think I could. I I've yeah. you know I, I feel like out of like the three of those Jamaican Caribbean you know musics like rock uh, ska dub or reggae like I probably more most into dub mm-hmm. and even then it's it I just couldn't do it. <laughs> Yeah, and I would love to kind of parse out um, the real distinctions between, you know, like dove and reggae and like those. Because um, I think in, in reading about this this album, they're like, oh yeah, it, it incorporates like all these different styles, and I'm like, oh, what's the? What's, yeah, I, 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 I think it's kind of like it, it would be like if we if if you just had like um, someone who wasn't a jazz fan listen to jazz, like they'd be like, oh yeah, it's jazz. But yeah. but you know but 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 then we'd be like oh no but but like this is like Wayne Shorter we're talking about and we're talking about like you know after kind of blue so he's part of the Miles Davis quintet yeah. you know so he's experimenting with all this modal stuff and they're just like it's jazz yeah exactly <laughs> like yeah I know I know I'm wrong to uh, to say that I, and I, I yeah it's kind of the same thing with electronic music I've gotten a little bit better with certain genres you know recognizing what the difference is but still there's yeah, so many different. 
I mean, it, it's all about experience. Yeah. You know, you, you end up hearing a lot of those differences. Like, you know, I, 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 I think more I got into, like, the blues, the more I could sort of tell the difference between, like, a Chicago blues and, like, you know, something more acoustic mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, what have you. Even though I, I think that that distinction is a little more obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, with electronic music, it, it that, that that's just a whole fucking rabbit hole. Like, like you like once you get into like house music and like techno it, it's like it's so just like splitting hairs yeah exactly um yeah but speaking of electronic music you, hey, you see that what a, what a you, you see that scott yeah you you proud of me no actually i am that that was that was a good i mean no. considering some of the other segues we've had in recent weeks that was a pretty yeah. good one i i mean <laughs> Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, one of these days you're going to do another, like, six series of Kevin Bacon thing and just, like, wreck us. Um, <laughs> so, oh, uh, I, I guess if we hadn't already said this, this is uh, an, a segment that we do called Album Dares that we just... Oh my gosh, we a thousand percent didn't... I didn't mention that at all. I'm really yeah, sorry. It's, it's cool. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the, the title of this episode will say it, so... Yeah. Um, Seems kind of redundant, but yeah, uh, this is like an album dare that we could we kind of just have each other uh, listen to albums that the other hasn't listened to. Um, and I was looking through my stuff. Um, I there were a couple of things I, I was considering giving you. I have you ever listened to Kaoru? Uh, sorry, Kaoru Abe. He's a uh, Japanese saxophone player. Uh, I don't think so, but that name sounds familiar for whatever reason. Yeah, I, I was trying to find that on streaming. I would have actually picked that because I think that's really interesting to talk about too. But um, this, I was also thinking about talking about this album, which is um, "Silver Apples of the Moon" by uh, Morton Sabotnik, um, which is a very early piece of electronic music. It's uh, technically it's the first piece of electronic music commissioned by a record company, apparently, according oh, to Wikipedia. So who knows? Um, and it's technically labeled under classical music because of uh, sort of, I think a lot of it has to do with its history, but I think also just the composition itself. Um, but th- there's there's a lot of interesting history with early electronic music that I, I just love. Like, I, I find it really interesting. Um, but basically, to sum it up, um, be this will just be a little little diversion before we dive in because i i could talk all day about this frankly um and i don't really want to do that to you, to you but um what sabotnik is doing here is working on a buglo 100 synth which is uh one of the first like analog synths that was ever made um and so to kind of go into this uh buglo is uh, a company founded by uh, sorry, Don Buchla, uh, which I should know, but for some reason I always get him and Robert Moog confused. I always think Robert Buchla, and I'm like, that that isn't right. Uh, but anyway, it's so uh, basically synthesizers, when they first were getting started, were kind of divided into what we call East and West Coast synthesis. Uh, and it's, it's mostly due to what you're doing with the sound after mm-hmm. it's being after it's been made so like uh for east coast for that moog sound that we know very well now that like you know um 
uh, Cosmiche music bands, like, you know, the Tangerine Dream used a lot. They used a lot of subtractive synthesis, which is what East Coast, what Robert Moog did, which mm-hmm. they would, um, you know, like the name suggests, they take an oscillator sound and they filter out parts of it. So they'll put, you know, like a, uh, like a low-pass filter, uh, for the most part, in front of it, maybe some other things. Whereas uh, with West Coast, which was pioneered by Buchla, uh, it was all about additive and about adding to the sound. So you would end up getting these really complex waveforms because sometimes you'd be like wave shaping it or maybe even just mixing it with other waveforms, which is uh, FM synthesis. Hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, you end up getting a very experimental sound that a lot of people aren't really used to with West Coast synthesis. Uh, and this happens to be just a like basically the first West Coast synth album just com- like composition even ever made um and it basically just it, it you can hear a lot of that like textural play throughout it it's a lot of um it, it has a more abstract sound to it um i think it, it's just i think it's it's best looking at these two styles of sound sort of in compared to each other because like you know, when you think of, like, a prog rock album that uses a lot of synths, like uh, like Yes or, like, uh, Emerson, like, and Palmer album, you know, you're, you're going basically with subtractive mm-hmm. on it, uh, whereas this is, you know, very... It, it can often be, like, dissonant and strange. And so that's um, that's sort of what we've got here. We've uh, This album consists of two tracks, uh, two compositions. One is uh, Silver Apples of the Moon, and then the other one is uh, called The Wild Bull. And um, I've always found them really interesting. Uh, just, I think be, because it, it's it's at this point in time where, like, electronic music and classical music were, like, the same thing, in a sense. Um, because the... Basically because the technology was so, uh, you know, uh, not it wasn't as commercially available. Like they were still pioneering this mm-hmm. while they're making this album, basically. Um, so, you know, you end up having this interesting crossover with like experimental classical music that I, I find really interesting that, you know, kind of started off in like the twenties and thirties with like Musique Concrete and like Pierre Schaefer and uh, whatnot. But anyway, um, yeah. Scoots. That, that just real quick. That's a really interesting, um, observation because you know obviously today classical and electronic i mean obviously there are artists that overlap but they're very they're yeah. really distinct styles but they it, it, they they are like i feel like they were for a long time and then i feel like last couple of years they've slowly been coming back together again yeah um because i'm thinking of people like caitlin ariel smith um mm-hmm. or um oh the, the I think married Lattimore too. Oh yeah. Um, they, like there were a lot of um. Oh, who is she? She does uh, Kelly Moran. That's who I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of these composers now who are, who are kind of like straddling the line between like being a composer and being like a musician and like sort of bringing ambient into classical music and vice versa. Uh, like like a slightly more like um, academic Tim Hecker in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't I, I'm, I can't say I'm the biggest fan of that 
type of style because uh, I really haven't seen a lot of really great examples. But it's just interesting that it's, it, it feels like it's becoming more of a thing again. Yeah, that that's yeah. I guess I never really thought of it like that, but it, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm sure at the time because I mean we talk, I mean we even refer to. Um, Maybe not exclusively, but you know, electronic composers. I feel like they're you know composing with the the tools at their disposal. It might not be you know orchestral yeah, or symphonic, but I mean, in some it, cases, it, it's, it is. It's, you know, it's an interesting. Sorry, go ahead. Say, I mean, in some cases, it is. You know, that's you know, Tim Hecker is is known to um, base a lot of his um, his albums off of samples from you know what a classical composer might literally make their you know make an album from. Yeah, so. I um, actually interesting case. Um, have you ever heard of a Kenaxis before? I think that's what it's called. It's um, it it's basically Holger Suzuki's uh, first album, the from from Can, mm-hmm. um, but it's like pre Can basically. Oh okay. But it's all like um, it, it's kind of plunderphonicsy. Like it's a lot of like tape, uh, you know, distortion and things like that. Oh interesting. And it opens up with uh, a just extended piece of a classical music okay you know it, it, it it's but by, by my what i was going to say is just that like i think when you dive deep enough and you start looking at these definitions of things uh in the music world and in, in the art world in general a lot of it ends up falling apart and not quite fitting together like you would expect it to because mm-hmm. like you know where does the line between composer and musician end you know like what like where where is that where is that line, I guess? Because I think back in the day, you know, 100 years ago, you know, back before recorded music, it was pretty simple that the, you know, the composer wrote the music and the musicians played it. Yeah. And, like, maybe sometimes you would have a composer, you know, playing a piece or conducting a piece. But you had that distinction. And I think with recorded music and with, I, I would say, you know, just pop music being more of a commodity now, you know, it, it's the it's been it's been skewed a little bit because like in a way you could consider like someone like you know joy division you consider them all composers to a certain degree because they wrote their own music but they also performed it so yeah no i I think that is i can't think of another genre um oh maybe that's not jazz that's not the yeah where you have um because i was gonna say i mean i guess you could technically include rock music but i don't i don't know if people we view like rock artists even though they literally are composed they're not really we don't see them as composers i i think it depends on who it is yeah, almost like because again like like I, I a lot of these definitions are really only kept in place by like you know sort of a cultural like zeitgeist yeah in a way which so it's all kind of like a musical gatekeeping in a way sure um you know, it's sort of like that old like you know that's not rock this is rock you know I think, but we're, we're getting way uh, out of line right now. Uh, I really want to know what you think of this thing. No, I thought this was an interesting uh, conversation, and uh, uh, I think it's fitting because I, I found this album really, really fascinating. And I, I, I listened to it through a lens of something you said. Um, it must have been on one of our ambient-related episodes that... Um, Obviously, this isn't you know a noise album, but you said that noise is like the ultimate extension of ambient music. And yeah. In a way, I kind of felt that's where he was going with this. In a way, where I, there are moments where I was listening to it, I let it fade in the backdrop, and there were other moments where 
I really honed in on what was going on. And I, I love the fact that there were, um, you know, spacious passages that really were, you know, beautiful in a way, but there were also moments that, you know, were, I guess, a little dissonant or just a little like unnerving and, and they blend together yeah. to create a really um, enticing, engulfing landscape. I honestly, I had the image of, um, almost like being inside of the the synthesizer like that's i, I kind of felt yeah. like or at least you know in a room that just was blaring just, with with yeah just, just dominated with one of those giant synths that takes up like the entire fucking room exactly yeah <laughs> it, it just it felt like it was just surrounded by um you know, everything that he was kind of unfolding and i i think it was a it was it was a really interesting listen. I don't know how many times I would return to it. Um, I, I think that I, I'm glad that I listened to it. I this is not a style I listen to yeah, super it, often, but I, I definitely I mean, appreciate. Like, it, it's an abrasive album in a sense. Yeah, you know, it, and it's because you know a, a lot of it has to do with just literally the construction of sort of the the, the instruments you know mm-hmm. at play here, like. You know, Buchla's would only use like a like a low pass gate, which isn't really like a filter per se. Like it, it will still filter out, you know, high end frequency, but it doesn't have the same um, kind of like soothing, you know, calmingness that uh, like a regular voltage controlled filter would bring. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's me nerding out a little bit on. No, that's what you know obviously i I haven't um dove into it as as much as you have but um i I think it's interesting that there is so much beneath the surface here i I mean i think it's just it's a yeah it's kind of a a a complex listen there's a lot you know on display for you to dive into but even more so um i think that kind of reinforces the point of how there's there's some inherent overlap both historically and just you know you know by virtue of how they're produced between electronic music and, and classical music like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of um you know theory or, or concepts behind it that that mirrors what might go into a classical composer's mind when they create a piece um, yeah i, I mean it, you know a lot of it was again trying to um you know pioneer new sounds you know what with the history with like sort of the beginning of recorded music that you know people were finally able to record music which means that they could theoretically take stuff that was already made and mangle it and make something new mm-hmm. and uh th- th- that's part of the reason john cage is so you know uh remembered as an, like an important figure in electronic music and just music in general because he was one of the first people to kind of theorize the idea of uh, like synthesis in a sense because he was saying like he, he basically predicted that there would be a time where you could make any sound you wanted to mm-hmm. uh, b- because of electronics uh, basically and I mean it's definitely there now Yeah. so uh, I, you know talking about this thing again you know I, I'm really like it's it's interesting to think about like how to take this album because i think on one hand um you kind of want to just treat it as like an ambient album almost or it like as like uh you know like an abstract electronic piece sort of like a um like a one oh tricks point never type of thing 
or like um like a Richard Divine or you know something like that um but at the same time you know given sort of the amount of composition that went into it and not to say that one oh tricks point ever or like you know divine don't compose or that they aren't spending time making their music but i i think the ease of use is has definitely uh you know differ it differs a lot between this album and you know today's electronic music um I what I'm trying to say is like you know I I I think it's it's it just it it has such an interesting foothold in music history mm-hmm. because like you know when I listen to classical music you know I'm often trying to just pay attention to everything that's going on in it and sort of the movement of it whereas with you know uh, like something that's more like a pop music you know you kind of have a lot of repetition going on and so you, it's 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 more about like, uh, like more of more about like the emotion it sort of gives off almost. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just like, how do you, wh- what do you do here? And, and I mean, I, I I don't think that there is an answer, or at least I don't think there's a wrong answer. Like you know, you, you listen to music the way you want to, but it just um, it opens up some interesting avenues for me when, when I'm thinking about it and like when I'm listening to something like this. Yeah, I mean so. that's a that's a really interesting perspective and. and... I always wonder what goes into, you know, I mean, across the musical spectrum, you know, how deeply different artists um, are thinking about the music. Obviously, you know, conceptually, uh, just in terms of, of performance, there's some level of enjoyment there. There's artistic intent. But how deep is, is the theory going? And Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really, it's almost depending on the genre in yeah. a way, because like, you know, you listen to like, I don't know, like a trap producer, like, you know, they're, they're not, even if they know music theory, which is kind of up in the air, it kind of depends on the producer, but like, they're not going to be using it in the same way that like, you know, an avant-garde composer would. Yeah, so for it, sure. It, you know, and, and like, then you come to like the idea of whether you're composing or you're improvising, or if you're doing something in between, or if you're completely doing away with both of those in favor of something else like um i I don't know if you remember i wrote a piece for heavy heavy blog um a while ago like a long time ago called um like three dimensions of the avant-garde i think and uh i i basically just posited that this is like a way to think about experimental music that Mm -hmm. it can be sort of in a compositional territory in improvisational territory or um what i called sort of like sound art like mm. sort of like sound for its own sake for its timbres and textures mm-hmm. um and i but my argument is more like that there's really no like boundary between the three of these i think it's it's very much kind of like a plane that you know there are some people who who will drift further to one side or to you know to one end of it than the other so. yeah for sure and even um, not to like defend trap music in a way, but I know yeah. there are some. Uh, oh, I, 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 I'm not. I'm not looking to show on trap music. Yeah, by the way, I'm, but I, I, I think just... you know, like, like Young Thug, for example. I know that he, uh, based on you know folks I've talked to, really love his music. He's really into um, using his voice and auto tune, and and like he actually puts thought and has you know his own musical. I mean, I, I hesitate to say musical theory, but he has his own kind of musical goals with. Um, 
styles and sounds that yeah. I think on the surface you certainly would not consider, you know, but, you would not put it in the same camp as musical theory. So you, you, I, you know, again, music theory, like, you know, you just have to kind of take, take the word music out of it for a second and that it's just a theory and that, you know, like think about like, you know, do, do you remember that old saying that, you know, like the theory of the universe that the world was sitting on top of an elephant that was sitting, you know, on top of a, like an endless stack of turtles. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it, it's just like there are a lot of theories and, you know, a theory's definition is that it's an idea that explains something, but it hasn't been completely confirmed. Mm. And so, you know, when it comes to music theory, like we think of traditional Western music theory as as music theory, as just like that term, when in reality it's it's much more nebulous than that. You know, like like Tom York can't read music, like really, yeah, seriously, he 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 can't read music. I mean, but at the same time, he has some level of music theory. You know, or like, um, you know, it, it, it's just interesting. Like, if you look in, you know, if you sort of work outside of the Eurocentric point of view, you know, you've you've like the way ragas are constructed and like. A lot of like indigenous Asian music is is completely different, you know. And then if you go to like African music, you know, a lot of like the rhythms there are, are things that people are just, you know, in the West are, are are just trying to theorize. Like the whole notion of like Euclidean rhythms comes from, you know, these these thoughts on, you know, like on sort of how to explain these African tribal rhythms in a way. Um, it's just really interesting just how how nebulous it is but I, I i consider that like i think if you want like i think when when it comes to being like a like an like an analysis like a critic of it i think this whole side of like of looking at it makes the entire conversation you're trying to have much more difficult but i i i i like it more like it's so much more freeing you know, because it's not, you're not, you're sort of looking beyond uh, sort of all the influences of something and you're looking at it exactly, like, you're looking at it as it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah I no, don't know. I, <laughs> do, do you want me to theorize some more? I, I, have, I have more time. <laughs> no, that, that, that's really interesting. And I think it's helpful. Um you know, it's not necessarily an exact science, but it's definitely a helpful yeah. framework, and it's um, it helps that you know there's kind of more depth to the music we listen to that we can explore or, or talk about and learn about. Yeah, if you want to use it, it's it's so weird, and like it's so like I think it's it's fun that it's so weird. Yeah, um, it, like have you have I I might be going on a little bit of a tangent here, but have you have you ever heard of this new thing that um people are talking about how uh, music isn't in the right like ratio. Isn't using the right harmonic ratios. Uh, no. This is like a new age type of bullshit thing. That um, there. I mean, I, I'm not going to go into it because I really don't know the harmonic series and like harmonic theory that well. Uh, but the idea is that there are certain ratios in music that are pleasing to the ear, and that some of those, um ratios like actually can 
co like correlate to other mathematical concepts very well. Like uh, the biggest one is just like the Fibonacci sequence and like the gold, the idea of the golden ratio. And so like there are people who are theorizing that, you know, you're not getting, you, you're not listening to music right in, but, but by which I mean, like, it's like, it will sound more pleasing if you, if you change like the harmonics of it, basically. Interesting. Yeah, it, 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 um, Adam Neely does a really funny video on it where he, he basically debunks it. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think that sounds, again, an interesting concept. That's something interesting to think about, but I just, it kind of goes back to when, I think, I don't know who wrote the original piece, but the Pitchfork wrote um, a response saying that like modern music criticism isn't, I think it even went so far as to say it wasn't valid because it didn't talk enough about musical theory. And mm. I think there's a lot of value um, if, if you want to dive into musical. I think you can get a lot out of understanding um, what's behind it, certainly if you're a musician yourself. But I just feel like that's not... Yeah, it, I, I think it's a pretty shitty point of view. Because it's, it's not to say that theory, like music theory, isn't important. But I think we're, just... we're talking about, you know, um, the, these... We're talking about craft that you know influences people down on like a very personal spiritual level, and it it just it it seems kind of um kind of like you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a way to you know say that it, like none of it matters like none of your opinions matter unless you know music theory almost because like there's a lot more to explore like you know if you want to move it over to like a different medium like just look at painting like you know you could go over uh all the theories that mondrian had you know for making his stuff mm -hmm. but some people are just gonna look at it and be like that's a bunch of fucking lines <laughs> yeah and and i just i feel like that's just not um that's just not how people listen to music I like and i would challenge I even like some, some people do but i don't know I, I feel like at just at a, at a, a basic level, even even the most staunch, um, you know, th theory minded you know person, um, it all it maybe this you know their enjoyment is informed by their understanding of theory, but it mm. first and foremost it's do you enjoy it? I mean that that's with any like, do you enjoy experiencing this? And whether you know film, TV show, art, I mean food, like anything in life. I think the the basic um, basic premise has to be like is this something you like doing and again maybe that is informed by their understanding of theory maybe it's possible for them to view it elsewhere but I think if you're talking about reviewing if you're talking about um, you know talking about music to the average listener that that's just not how the average listener approaches yeah. music like, I, I mean if you ask me I, I feel like a majority of critics like don't enjoy the music that they're listening to or at least maybe they did at one point, but they don't anymore. Uh, not, not, I, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize in a way, but it, it sometimes feels like that. Like, I know being a literature major in college, I always got that feeling from people who were teaching. Because, like, it just seemed like they cared more about, like, the, like the cultural context and sort of the philosophy behind it than the actual words. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I definitely think that can add to it like if, if an artist is yeah. saying something compelling with their music or if they're doing something you know interesting that's beyond the scope of the genre up to that point like i think thinking about the context 
you know, literally within the world, but also within their specific genre. That does add to it. But mm. ultimately, all the records of my collection I own because I enjoy listening to it. Like, I yeah. can't, I don't have, I, don't, I can't think of an album that, I mean, there are albums I have that I like putting on to like think about it, or I think there's, you know, deeper, deeper aspects that I can appreciate about it. But I don't have an album that I specifically put on, like, you know, get on my notebook and like try to, you <laughs> <laughs> try to really, um, you know, dig into it versus just enjoying listening to it. Yeah, totally. I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I just finished um, this book by uh, Charlie Kaufman, the uh, the director, uh, screenwriter, mm-hmm. uh, called, uh, it's, it's his uh, debut novel, just came out a couple weeks ago. It's called uh, Ant Kind. And it, it, it's basically about this exact thing, in a way, because it's all about this this film critic who discovers this, uh, this film that's uh, three months long, <laughs> And he thinks it's going to be like the next big discovery, basically, in the film world, uh, because it took like the guy who made it like ninety years to make it, basically. Uh, because, again, three three months, three wow. month long film. So, um, but it's all about sort of like the misadventures from that. But you always get like kind of that feeling that he doesn't actually enjoy, like the main character doesn't enjoy any of the stuff he's watching in a way like he talks about like how he has to like view a film like seven times and like one of those like two of those are he has to view it upside down to see the effect of gravity uh, to, to see to see what the director has done with the notion of gravity in film oh, jeez <laughs> but then he also has to watch it backwards too to see what time is dealing with it and it's like jesus christ dude <laughs> and just it's so funny because he just like he just shits on critics so much it's it's hilarious <laughs> uh like he he'll always talk about like these monographs that that he's made <laughs> like then they're always like he's like oh yeah you know like uh i i started color theory in harvard like oh yeah i i started i i studied uh you know Pacific Islander anthropology in Harvard. <laughs> you know, it's just like it gets so esoteric. It, it was a great book, but I, I just all I have to say is just, yeah, it, it's about enjoyment. At the end of the day, if it makes you happy, then you know, doesn't you? You don't need to have to expound on that anymore if you don't want to. Yeah, exactly. And I think just, I mean, not don't want to dig too much deep into this because we're hitting close to the mark. But I think that yeah. kind of goes in the opposite direction with. The concept of guilty pleasures like i think that i don't really think i mean obviously there's some music where we're more apt to highlight that we listen to than other other types of music yeah i mean if you enjoy song you enjoy song like i don't really think um i don't i, I think guilty pleasure is like why would you feel guilty about something you enjoy i, I oh think, yeah i think that might speak to maybe there's something about it um you acknowledge is not really good and ultimately, like so, some music I, I consider as guilty pleasure, I've kind of faded in interest over time because what I what was guilty about it, I ultimately realized I I think is kind of a downside or like a negative to, to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really boils down to enjoyment, and from there, you can definitely dig in and, and appreciate the deeper aspects of it. But yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, you want to talk about albums of the week? Though? Yeah, and I would like you to go first because why not? Well, yeah, we're, we're switching it up. We've been switching it up for the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, so I actually referenced uh, the artist that is 
who made the album of the week earlier. It is uh, 10 Tricks Point Never, and the album's called uh, R Plus 7. Right. Um, and this is... So, this kind of reminds me of, of how... Of when you chose uh, Jesus is Born, I think, or Jesus King, whatever that Kanye yeah, whatever album. It's called. Yeah. Uh, well, just because I... I don't really know if I like this per se, but it, it intrigues me. And uh, because, like, I was listening to this because it, it was listened as, uh, like, progressive electronic music at Rate Your Music. And um, I had it on, and it was just, like, I, I, I one of the tricks but never, it's always been a tough sell for me. Um, like, Replica is an interesting album to listen to, but it's not something I pull off the shelf all the time. Um... But this, and it, part of it is because, like, and I, I especially experienced this with R plus seven was that there was this, it, it just felt like he was throwing all these like random ideas together, and just like every four minutes he was like, oh yeah, that that's a track right there, and it just felt like so, uh, like uncomposed and just chaotic and like like just poorly thought through, I guess, uh. But but as I kept listening to it, I, I I started sort of feeling the rhythm in a like in a way that he was sort of getting into with this, and like by the end of it, like the chaos kind of dissolved and became something new. Um, and it was it was just very it was it was an odd experience because I, I was also reading this book called uh, The Memory Police by uh, Yoko Gawa, uh, which is a really great book, and it's 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 all about kind of uh, disappearance, like all these things are disappearing from this island where the narrator lives, and once they lose something, their memories of it are lost, so it holds no meaning for them anymore. And it just, it, it, it for some reason, it, like the two just dovetailed in my mind, you know, in a very interesting way that I, I really wanted to just go back and check out this album again. So nice, yeah. I haven't, other than replica. And Garden of Delete, I haven't listened to a ton of uh, One of Chicks Point Never. Um, but he, he's been a little hit, hit or miss for me as, yeah, I, as well. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was thinking of that his latest album, the album cover for that thing. I, I hate that album cover so much. <laughs> I really like um, I really like the cover for, for Replica. And there's yeah, a... Replica's great, Garden of Delete's great, but then Age Of is, is just a MacBook with, with, with three girls behind it. I don't know if you remember this thing. No, but I don't. I don't think so. L- l- look it up, please, because I I need someone else to to like tell me that I'm not insane by thinking this is like one of the dumbest album covers ever made. I'm sorry. What, so it's it's called I'm... Age of. Oh wait uh, a second! Apparently, Kurian was on this album. I think I really like this album. Oh yeah, th- this was super dumb. Yeah, I remember yeah, the, this. The album cover is just like, it's like a like, like a bad Nancy Drew novel. Well, oh, it, it, I, honestly, I, this is the, my first time noticing that's a fucking MacBook on the cover. Yeah, oh, it's even worse. <laughs> well, oh my it, gosh, that's terrible. Well, I just, I it just seems like a look how clever I am album cover, in a way. Like I, I have, I have some big things to say, <laughs> but it's like. <sighs> Like, what are those things, Daniel? <laughs> That's... Um, anyway. 
I, I I don't want to shit on it, but but it, it, like so you're talking about your album of the week though, or no no you you were talking about OPN. Yeah, um, yeah. there's there's a ver I don't know who did it. Uh, I, I don't even know how I found it, but someone colored it in because obviously it's black and oh, white, and the way right. they colored it in is is just really really seamless, and it honestly looks like what you know what the album should look like and it's it's really you, you had that as your your facebook wallpaper i did yeah for a long I, time. I just i think it's really really well done yeah yeah it is a really cool album cover um, I, I mean his album covers for the most part of, are really cool so yeah um i i don't know why i haven't dug more into his catalog i think just because i replica is, is i really enjoy that i enjoy garden delete too uh, i think age of I really liked it at first, but it didn't really age as well with me. Uh, I don't know why. Um, but yeah, my yeah. album of the week. Uh, we had some driving, my fiance and I. We, we drove a lot um, this weekend. So I grabbed um, a CD box that I have for uh, Fleet Foxes. It's everything up until um, their latest album, Crack Up. And, you know, if you're familiar with them at all, you know you know just kind of like indie folk a little bit more they're probably one of the more folksy indie folk bands they're, yeah they're definitely one of the more like traditionally folk yeah folk like they bands. definitely um they have a lot of elements of their sound that are fit in with the kind of newer wave of folk it's a little bit more updated but still it's very rooted much more in folk traditions than your average uh you know your average acoustic crooner so to speak um but I bought this box set because there's a an early EP of the or a couple early EPs of there that are out of print and to buy them separately it kind of you know it would be a little bit more than I want to spend. Um, I forget which which EP it was. Let me check that real quick. Uh, Sun, is it Sun Giant or Fleet Foxes? I think I wanted because uh, oh it was Fleet Foxes yeah and, and that actually is my album of the week. I thought there was another one. I, oh you know what it was? It came with like a rarities. Um, a rarities collection what was one of the discs in the box set and uh, actually a pretty good rarities collection you know usually i don't really care for those but i thought it had some interesting uh, additions hmm. but uh sun giant was their first foray into the kind of folk you'd expect from the band but i think that their first ep being you know what i'm going to consider my album of the week it's i would have really been interested to see them take this sound further because it's it's kind of a like indie rock, indie pop, but it definitely leans more into there's some like math rock elements, but not too crazy. It's not too poppy, it's not too rock oriented. It's a really nice cross section of indie styles. Like I think like a lot of of the melodic and um kind of kind of just catchy moments from you know all of the indie offshoots you know folk rock pop um just come together in a really interesting way it doesn't really sound mm. like i can't think of a lot of direct comps and it's a pretty short ep you know six tracks about 20 minutes um but it's not uh, i don't know like it's just it's a really interesting record that the more i listen to it i'm just i'm uh, i wonder how that how that jump happened because this really isn't like a, a, a folk album at its core yet they completely peeled away 
the rock and pop and, and really dove headfirst into um, a lot of more traditional aspects of folk music. And I, I wonder why they took took that direction. I mean, I highly doubt they would ever, you know, at this point, they're pretty deep in their career, they would ever, you know, retread this I direction. Mean, considering, like, just the huge amount of success they've gotten going in that direction, like, I, you know, I, I don't see them moving Yeah, anywhere. I know, yeah. But, because um, like, didn't the uh, didn't the debut get like just like a ton of like awards? Oh yeah, I, I mean they're yeah. they're self titled, um, especially helpless helplessness blues has yeah. been really really well received. Uh, Crack up was, uh, I think Crack up was unfortunately a little bit overshadowed by um, helplessness. Uh, no, by uh, uh, well in a way, but uh, pure comedy. They came out oh, in, in yeah. I think they came out the same year. Yeah, they must have. They they came out around the same time. Yeah, it's the think same it, year. It really overshadowed because obviously, you know, uh, Josh Tillman is much more of a personality that people like talking about. Whereas, um, uh, who's the main guy? Fleet Foxes. Uh, Rob Pecknold, I think. Yeah, like he he's a much more subdued figure. You know, he doesn't really take much of the foreground. Whereas, you know, Josh Tillman putting out a new album is kind of an event. Um, yeah, which is. Which is exactly what he wants. <laughs> yes, I kind of. He released a couple new songs this year that are much more in line with what. Because I didn't love his last album; I thought it was okay. So well, did, really didn't he release like two albums in one year? Um, I don't think so. I thought that that was City. Um, no, no, it was a God's Fear Customer was the year after, uh, Pure Comedy. So yeah, and it came out. And it was a little bit more. Um, it was a little bit simpler, but not, I, I don't think in a necessarily a flattering way. Like, I think it just, it wasn't, it just wasn't as interesting. Like his, his first album, Fear Fun, is a little bit simpler, but it was still, you know, a, you know, like a fun, a fun album with some fun tracks. Uh, yeah. And it, actually it works together because, uh, before he started Father John Misty, he, um, he was the drummer on Helplessness Blues. Oh, okay. Which, uh. Is an interesting little tidbit, I think, because I remember I bought Helpless of Blues, and I was like, wait a second, is that is that Father John Misty? Or is, is that, like, did he did he do that? I don't know, like, how prominent he was, because they're one of those bands where just not every song is, like, a drum, a drum kit song, but... Yeah. Um, well, from the personnel lineup in Helplessness Blues, it seems like they're, um, they're, like, one of those, almost like a collective, like, that they all have different instruments that they're playing. Yeah. Um... um yeah, all right. I was trying to think of like a, a cap up, but yeah, I, I think definitely I would have, um, I would highly recommend. It's a very unique release in the sense that it, it really sounds like nothing else. The discography, or really, it's a unique slant on a bunch of different genres from the early two thousand indie scene. So, yeah, self titled Fee Fox EP. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, if you're interested, uh, you know, if you want to hear more, just, you know, listen to us on uh, iTunes, Pod, Apple Podcasts, Android Podcasts, anywhere you can get a podcast, basically. Uh, we're on all of it. Uh, if you follow us on Anchor, too, you know, whatever works for you. 
And uh, definitely be sure to follow us on Twitter. And if you ever have any suggestions, topics you want us to talk about, or questions, anything like that, uh, be sure to email us. Yeah, uh, we're at, at Seishira Podcast on Twitter. And our email, I think, is Seishira Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, as always, thanks for listening. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Bye.